Thank you very much. I love the fact that you know they included meals and cakes in the life groups. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't going to say this, but I, last term, there's one life group that I, every time they finish, I tell them, if you have extra cake, just please feel free to leave. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, please do join life groups. If, you know, pray about it. Ask the Lord. The reason why we have so many courses is that we, we all have different, you know, different walks in our lives, we, we have different areas that we, we want to explore more, and God wants, God wants us to grow in whatever area that is, so please pray about it, and uh, yes, this is not just, as I said last Sunday, life groups is not just a part of the church program, but it's, it's a vital um, part of the church. It, 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 this is a growing strategy of the church, because we believe that, you know, this is not enough. As much as this is great, meeting together as a community of believers, you know, it's important for us to meet you know, in, in small groups because the, the, in small groups, that's where we can truly pour out our hearts, ask questions, and uh, exercise our gifts. You know, exercise our gifts. For some of you, you know, God has prompted things in your heart, but because it's, it's a big group, you might feel a bit intimidated. A life group is the best place to, you know, to start practicing um, your, your spiritual gifts. So yes, pray about it. This morning we're going to continue our series on Holy Grace. And uh, last Sunday we, we talked about grace. We talked about unexpected grace. So basically the whole, the whole aim of uh, last Sunday's message and today's message is really for us to go back to that appreciation of, of God's grace. Because I don't know about you, but when we have been recipients of God's grace for a while, sometimes we lose that spark. You know what I mean? We lose that appreciation. We, we kind of like, okay, oh, it's just another thing of God's goodness. And great things, but and, and, and in my heart, I, I felt like God prompted me to just encourage us and challenge us to go back to that place of, wow, thank you, God. Because when we go back to that place, we go back to our first love. If we go back to the time when, when, when God really moved in our hearts and touched our hearts and and this is one of the major advantages for those who have just become Christians. You know what I mean? Because they're just so in love with God. And sometimes we lose that when, when we grow in our knowledge of God. And, and God wants us to just you know, go back to that place again, to that, um, to that um, um, awe and appreciation of His grace. So last Sunday, we, we talked about some of the things that, that grace does for us through the story of David and Mephibosheth. In 2 Samuel 9, we talked about how grace finds and blesses its enemies, unexpected people. We talked about grace always initiates. Andy mentioned today that God is an active God. He always initiates. He always seeks for people. We talked about um, grace does not discriminate. Um, you know, Jesus ministered to all sorts of people. We talked about uh, grace taking away our fears, you know, grace taking it us out of barren places, restores what is rightfully ours, invites us at the king's table, and lastly, transforms us from the king's enemies to his sons and daughters, which is amazing. And today, while preparing for, for um, well, this week, while preparing for my, my talk this Sunday, you know, I was asking, Lord, how can, I, how can I, again, encourage your people to go back to that place of appreciation, you know, of God's grace. And we mentioned last Sunday that one of the ways we appreciate God's grace is to understand the value of God. Because once we understand the value of God, we understand 
how amazing grace is. And this week, um, or just, just this past week, I, I'm, you know, I've been reading through a book called The Pleasures of God. And basically the main, the main point of the book is that God is a happy God, that God has pleasures. Who wants to spend eternity with an, an, an happy God? But basically, if you want to know this guy, we want to know the things he enjoys. That's, that's the main you know, gist of the author. And, but the, things that really, the thing that really gripped me, at least in the first, first part, you know, chapter one, is how God really enjoys his son. You know, the father's love for his son. And I've been just meditating on this. And, and I, I wrote a summary summary of, of just chapter 1. The author, John Piper, said that God's pleasure is first and foremost a pleasure in his son. There were two occasions in the, in the New Testament when God the Father openly declared his love and delight for his son. The first one is baptism, which we read in Matthew chapter 3. And the second one was in Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus and Peter, John, and James, they were on the top of the mountain. Remember that story when Jesus was transfigured? And, and, and the author went through these two, two instances. The first one was when, G, uh, when Jesus was baptized, heavens opened. Remember that story? And there was a voice. And God the Father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. I am delighted. And then there was a dove. You know, there was a dove that descended onto Jesus. Now remember, the dove is basically a poor man's offering in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, if there were poor people who couldn't, couldn't afford sheep or lambs, they would, they would buy doves. And basically what the author was saying is that God is delighted in the meekness. The Father God is delighted, loves the Son, and takes pleasure in the meekness and compassion and the servanthood of the Son. But the second Instant, the second incident was in Matthew chapter 7. I'm just going to move this because some people commented to me. I've been docking this back and forth like this last Sunday. So I'll just move that. But anyway, um, the second instance was when Jesus was in that mountain. And again, God openly declared his love for his son. When, um, when heavens opened, there was a voice. And this time, it wasn't a dove. But Jesus transfigured into this very bright image, bright being that the disciples couldn't even look at, look at him. And, and the author was saying, the Father does not only delight in the servanthood and compassion of the Son, but he also delights in the supremacy of the radiance of the Son. So when the, in that incident in Matthew chapter 17, as if the Father peeled Jesus' humanity and allowed John, James, and Peter to see the glory of Jesus as a, as a God, as a deity. Do you, do you know what I mean? And God the Father said, this is my son in whom I am delighted. So the author was saying, God the Father was absolutely delighted in the servanthood, com- compassion, meekness, and obedience of the son, but he's also delighted in the supremacy and the glory and the radiance of the son, and how these two nature mingle in the character of Jesus. And then he goes on, he says that, that um, the father's intimacy with the son is utterly unique, that their intimacy and communion are incompa- incomparable. There, if there was a passion of love in the heart of God, it is a passion for his son. The infinite happiness of the father consists in the enjoyment of his son. And the author said it's, it's impossible to overstate 
the father's love for his son. So where does, the, where does grace fit in? Well, it's in this here, in this verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And the power of this verse in our hearts lies in our understanding of how the Father loves the Son so much. Every Wednesday, we have a toddle in group here, and uh, we normally get 40 to 50 kids. It's, it's gloriously pandemonium, glorious chaos, um, toddlers. And, um, but there was one Wednesday when... Um, I was in the office, Elisa was leading the meeting, and suddenly I heard a call from Elisa, and uh, she was calling me from, from downstairs, and she said, Dominic, Liam's missing. And at that moment, I just, I, the, the thought of, it's, it's horrible, the thought of losing my son, all this imagination, it's just unbearable. And Stuart also heard Elisa's call and just grabbed a, a bar just in case uh, you know, Liam was kidnapped or something, and the door was open. And it was just the fear and anxiety, and, and it's horrible. And uh, only to find out that Leah managed to open this door, climbs right to the very top of the stairs, and sit, sat there. Cheeky little monkey. <laughs> gave his parents, almost, almost gave his heart attack. Anyway, but what I'm trying to say is that even for that very brief moment that I've experienced, it's to, see, to imagine myself being separate from me. How much more the father? When the father saw his son, who infinitely loved, immensely loved, they they were co-eternal. They were never separated. And suddenly beaten, spat, and mocked. And then Paul was saying here that, again, the force of this verse lies in the intimacy of the father and the son. How can I not wake up feeling blessed? (laughs) How can I not... How can, I, how can I ever not appreciate grace? Do, do you know what I mean? If you only grasp God's love for his son, I mean, God's love for his son is not the same as his love for us. He enjoys, immensely enjoys Jesus. And suddenly he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Can, can, you, can, you, can you feel the force of, 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 of this verse? How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Basically, if God has done the hardest thing in heaven, how can he not bless you guys? Do, do you know what I mean? And, so for, and God was speaking to me, one of the ways we appreciate, we'll go back to appreciation of God's grace, is to understand the intimacy of the Trinity, of the Trinity to see the Father's love for his Son. Because if we understand the depth, the immensity of God's love for His Son, then we, we say, God, wow, thank you. You gave your Son. That must have been difficult. I was, uh, you know, I was reflecting again when Jesus was on the cross saying, Father, why have you forsaken me? You know, for all eternity, they've been, they've been one. And suddenly in that very moment, they were separated. Do you, know, do you know what I mean? And it was, it, it gripped me. It gripped me. It made me, it made me think, wow, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your amazing, amazing grace. And so last week, we, we talked about, we, we went through a story in the Old Testament, 
And now we're going to go through a story in the New Testament. Again, hopefully, uh, encourages us to appreciate grace. And this is a familiar story. You all know this. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30, Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman. And I, I love this story because, again, it shows so much of, of God's grace. So, let's go through this. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now this is a very interesting verse, verse here, the first four verses of John chapter 4, because if, if you are a church leader, for example, if you're a church pastor, and you hear another pastor, another minister, gaining more disciples, you, you would enjoy that, right? You would basically praise the Lord, hallelujah, thank you Lord for the things that you've been doing in that church, for a lot of people getting saved making sense. But here, it's not the same case because Jesus knew the heart of the Pharisees. The heart of the Pharisees was not really concerned about... Can you hear me? It's okay. The heart of the Pharisees is not really concerned about truth or about people, but it's more position and prestige and power. Am I making sense? So Jesus had had to flee simply because he heard the news that the Pharisees heard the reports that Jesus was baptizing more disciples. Am I making sense? So basically, Jesus, he was not, not out of fear, but he knew that the time of the confrontation has not yet come. Because for the Pharisees, their main concern was position and power, not people. Okay? And here it says, now he had to go through Samaria. And some, one translation says he, he needed to go through Samaria. He's on his way to Galilee from Judea, but he had to go through Samaria. And we're going to explore more about that later to appreciate this, this particular line here. Well, the first thing I would like to point out is um, grace is always about people, not position or power. Grace is always about people, not position or power. In fact, conversely, if we are consumed with having more position or higher position and, or more power, then we, be, we stop being gracious. We're making sense. Now, don't get me wrong. Position and power are not necessarily wrong. In fact, there are tools for us to better serve people. We're making sense. But grace is always about people, not position or power. Here we read in Mark chapter 10, 15, For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. Jesus knew right from the very beginning that the Pharisees were jealous of him. They were not really concerned about the truth, about healing people. They are just concerned about their status as Pharisees. So you can see there's a contrast between Jesus' heart and the Pharisees' heart. Because grace is always about people, not position or power. And then he says he needed to go through Samaria because, because of a divine appointment. And we read this here. Verse 5 and 6. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sikar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. 
Now, in order for us, this seems like a normal verse, right? It's a normal verse. But in order for us to appreciate what Jesus had done here, let me take, us, let me take you back to just the historical context of Samaria. After, after the reign of Solomon, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, whose capital is Samaria, and the southern kingdom, which is Judah. Now, eventually, these two kingdoms were captured by foreign empires because God judged the Israelites because of the hardening of their hearts. Assyrian, the Assyrian Empire basically captures the northern kingdom, Samaria, and Babylon captures the southern kingdom. Okay, are you, are you following me? Now, what happened was when Assyrians captured the northern kingdom, or Samaria, they took all Israelites of substance, meaning to say all the Israelites who are intelligent, wealthy, or who belong to the royalty, and deported them across, across Middle East. Basically, they, they deported them to different parts of Middle East. But also, the Assyrians took different people from different nations and resettled them in Samaria, who in turn intermarried with the surviving Israelites. Are, are you following me? So now, in Samaria at that time, we have these foreigners marrying, intermarrying the, the local Jews. Okay? But not only did they intermarry with the local Jews, they also introduced their own gods and religion to the surviving Jews. Hence, the Samaritans believed in the first five books of the Old Testament and combined them with other religions from other countries. So you have this mixed, weird, superstitious religion. Okay? And that's why when the Jews returned from the exile, particularly in the southern kingdom, they viewed Samaritans as political rebels, but also racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by unacceptable elements. You see that? So there was a great animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritans more than they hated the Gentiles. It was that bad. In fact, one scholar said some pious Jews, even though Samaria was the, clo- was the shortest route to Galilee from, Jude- from Judea, they would, n- they would intentionally avoid that route. They would intentionally avoid that route so that they would avoid the Samaritans. Do you know what I mean? So the Jews really hated, there was this great animosity. And here we are, Jesus, a Jew, a rabbi, intentionally going through Samaria. Can you see, can you appreciate what Jesus had done here? Do you know what I mean? Even though there was animosity between the Jews and Samaritans, Jesus did not, you know, did not give in to that. Basically, grace transcends geographical, political, historical, racial, and religious boundaries. When we were in Jordan last, last year, you know, we've heard reports from different families of how they, they were so touched because people from England would leave their own comfort zone, go to the Middle East, sit in their living room, bless them, and listen to their stories. How, for them, it's like, and not only that, you're Christians and we're Muslims. Am I making sense? Because grace transcends geographical, political, historical, and racial religious boundaries. Grace, would, grace does not discriminate. Grace would always reach out to anyone, <laughs> anywhere. Because that's what Jesus did. And now remember what was the time when Jesus sat on the well? It was about noontime. Okay? 
When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Notice the woman's genuine surprise here. She did not expect that at all. An unexpected grace. She did not expect that at all. And again, there were so many, so many factors that we need to consider here. You already heard about you know, being a Samaritan. There was, a, there was animosity between a Jew and a Samaritan. But secondly, it says, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Now back in those days, the rabbis do not speak to women in public, even to their own wives or sister. Because for them, back in those days, it was a waste of time. In fact, one, seriously, yes, yes, I mean, you can see, you can see, you know, the brokenness of, of you know, of their tongue. But you can, there was even a, a scholar who said, there were a group of Pharisees, they're called the, the bruised and the bleeding Pharisees. You know why? Because as soon as they, they, they see a woman on the street, they would close their eyes and literally walk into walls and houses. The bruised and the bleeding Pharisees. I was just thinking while reading, while reading that, that bit, if I was a woman back then, I would, I would love to tease this Pharisee. I would stand in front, just, just to... So when he opens his eyes, I'm ready. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. This time, it's not just about race. It's also about gender. Do you know what I mean? And here, it says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And the word do not associate, really, in, in Greek, it says, for Jews do not use the same cups that Samaritans have used. There's, as much as possible, there's no, you know, there's no relationship, there's no connection between Jews and Samaritans. That's what the Jews wanted. But also, notice what was the time, what's the time from the very beginning? It was about noon time. Now, back in those days, the women would draw water usually early in the morning or late in the afternoon when it wasn't too hot and usually in company. Okay? That was the norm. In fact, one scholar said if a Jew would like to find a wife, he would go to the well early in the morning or late in the afternoon because that's where the woman would draw water. That's the time the woman would draw water. Okay? But this time, the woman was alone and also... It was noon time. It's a very unusual time. So it could be that this woman not only was a Samaritan woman, but she was also an outcast by her own people. And later on, we will read that this was indeed the case because of her moral reputation. So this is a very interesting character here. She's not only a Samaritan, which is also a woman, but she was also in hiding because she was shunned, not just by her own people, but particularly with the women. And we will find that out why, why, why that's the case. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And we see here that grace does not bow down to man-made tradition. Grace doesn't care what gender you, you have, what, what, what race you have, or what moral reputation, if you're hiding or not. Okay? Grace, again, does not discriminate. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, this is a very interesting statement by Jesus here. Suddenly, Jesus was trying to shift the woman's attention from the physical water 
to have a spiritual conversation. Do you know what I mean? Jesus was trying to use a physical water to point out a spiritual thirst. A physical water to symbolize a spiritual water. Are you, are you following me? Okay. Jesus was suddenly shifting. And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now there's also a, um, a principle here. Andy, Andy sort of touches a while ago. If you knew, you would have asked. If you knew, you would have asked. Now how many of us, especially true to my life, because I just don't know, I don't have a deeper revelation of who Jesus is and his gift. That's why I didn't ask. I just relied on my own strength or our own effort because we, wrote, we don't really know who this Jesus is. Who it is that's asking or giving, offering us a drink and his gift. Am I making sense? So grace takes our eyes off from the temporal stuff, from the physical stuff, and focus us on Jesus and his gift. Grace points us to Jesus and his gift. John Piper said, grace is radically and joyfully God-centered. But notice the woman's reply. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Now, back in those days, it's common to describe spring as living water because it seemed alive as it bubbled from the ground. And the woman was still thinking from the physical stuff here. You, you know what I mean? He's still not connecting to what Jesus was saying. She's still not connecting to what Jesus was saying. And, it's, it, and basically, the woman was saying, are you greater than our father Jacob? And here, G- Jesus' answer is, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus sharpened the contrast between the physical and the the spiritual. And the key here is that the water I give them will become in them a spring of water. Are you following me? And the woman was even the concern with the physical water. Jesus was taking her eyes off from that perspective to a spiritual perspective because Jesus knew that she has a spiritual need that needs to be addressed. But there's another principle here. You know, oftentimes man, man had always tried to satisfy the deepest longing in their heart, using physical stuff. So we, we try to, you know, we try to uh, feel that loneliness at camp using wealth, fame, whatever, whatever physical stuff that we can think of, education. None of these are not necessarily bad things. But we use these things to fulfill a deeper longing. When in fact Jesus said, the water I give them Will, will, will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Grace satisfies the deepest longings in our hearts. We cannot, try, we cannot 
fulfill or satisfy the deepest parts of our hearts with physical stuff because those things are not physical stuff. And only Jesus can truly, truly satisfy the deepest longings in our hearts. And, you know, here's the truth. I, I know that truth, but sometimes I fall into the trap of using physical stuff to wrap my identity. That I feel more valued if I have these things, or if I have this, you know, particular whatever education, or whatever it is. Yeah, do you know what I mean? So it's not just for unbelievers, it's also for Christians. Sometimes we fall into the trap of looking externally. You know, if we have this thing, if I can just have this, if I can just fix this thing, if I can just have this, then I'll be okay. Do you know what I mean? When in fact Jesus said, the water I give you can truly satisfy. And um, one author, John Ortberg, um, he wrote a book called Soul Keeping. And in that book, he, he just recounted um, his experience in the church when there was a time he was so frustrated of the church because he wanted the church to grow. He was, just, he was just frustrated in the church and he was actually advised in turn to be forced leave by the members because of, out of that frustration, he was not able to lead the church well. And basically, he went to a friend whose name is Dallas Willard and Dallas has challenged him, find your identity and joy in God. Meaning to say, regardless of what happens of the church, make sure that you are deeply rooted and grounded in the presence of God. Because the results of your ministry does not define who you are. Equally, the results of what we do in life, good things or work, whatever it is, family, they don't give us, they don't give us value, real value. It's only the presence of God. It's only the, the water that Jesus offers. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, this is an interesting answer because if the woman was indeed hiding, this is the perfect gift, right? She doesn't need to come to the well because she doesn't need to be thirsty. She's still, you know, um, basically thinking of the physical stuff, wow, this is amazing. If I can have this kind of water that I don't have to hide, I don't have to come to the well at noontime in the middle of the heat of the sun just to draw water. I, I, I won't be thirsty again. And Jesus said, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband. She replied, Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Well, rabbinic traditions disapprove of more than three marriages, even though they're lawfully allowed to do it. How much more couple living together who are not married? And basically what Jesus did here was in the most gentle possible way, she exposed the woman's moral reputation, moral sin. Am I making sense? In, in, in Jesus, I'm, I love giving you the living water. But there's something that you, stop, you should stop hiding. Do you know what I mean? 
And sometimes we have this idea of grace of just pretending that there's no sin. Do you know what I mean? That being gracious is that overlooking that sin. Actually, not. Because in order for us to truly appreciate God's grace, sin must be confronted. And that's where we truly appreciate grace. You know why? Because when sin is revealed and we, still, and, and we are exposed and there's nothing to hide, and still God loves us. That's what we, that's, we really appreciate grace. Not that God loves us when only in the good stuff, or good things in our lives, but also including stuff that are not right for who we are. Because grace does not excuse sinful living. It confronts sin to bring healing, not condemnation. In order for the woman to receive the living water, she needs to be convinced of the sin. And we see later the effect of it. It's amazing. If this is the reason why the woman was hiding because of her moral reputation, after this, after this encounter with Jesus, you can see the freedom later on. Uh, we, we, we'll go to that later. Verse 19, verses 19 to 20. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, two things. First, notice the, the woman's revelation of who Jesus is is increasing. The first time, the woman said, you are a Jew. And this time, I can see that you're a prophet. It's increasing. You see that? Okay? But then the woman engages Jesus in a theological discussion. I can see that uh, you Jews claim that the worship is in Jerusalem, but for us Samaritans, we worship on Mount Gerizim. Now what's a better way to hide your sin was to engage in theological discussion? Perhaps the woman was evading a further probing, you know what I mean, by Jesus in his embarrassing moral reputation. But Jesus was gracious and gentle enough to engage in the conversation. Or perhaps the woman was really hang up with, with the, the main difference between the Jews and the Samaritans. For, for her, she still couldn't get over the fact that you Jews insist in worshiping in, in the Jerusalem. Well, we know that Moses you know, commissioned Mount Gerizim as the place of worship. You're wrong. We're right. You know, do you know that? Do you know what I mean? So either, either the, the woman was evading or she was still hung up with that main differences between the Jews and the Samaritans. Okay? But Jesus said, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Because worship is not bound by places. Because worship is not bound by religious practices. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. And this is referring to the revelation of God through the Samaritans and the Jews. Basically, for the Samaritans, they only have the first five books of the Old Testament. Whereas for the Jews, they have the whole Old Testament, including the prophets. Do you know what I mean? So you do not know what you worship. And Jesus said, we Jews, we know what you worship. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father will seek, seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Grace teaches us the right understanding of worship. If worship is, is 
how we are designed to live, then we must understand what is the right, you know, the proper way of worshiping God. Worship is not bound by, the church is not the building. We are the church. And worship, worship is not, it's not bound by, again, places. That, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to TN1, 1AY, Hanover Road to worship God. It's not bound by places, but worship. If you want to worship God, we worship God in spirit and in truth. And then the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Imagine the shock of that woman in that, in that verse. The woman was waiting, or the Samaritans were waiting for the Messiah, and suddenly this guy in front of her was the Messiah talking to her, a Samaritan, a woman, a woman with questionable moral reputation, and yet reaching out to her, reaching out to her. You see, grace is radically and joyfully God-centered. Grace will always reveal to us who Jesus is. will always give us a deeper revelation. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. If grace does not point us to Jesus, I would question that. Because grace is always about Jesus. And again, you, you, you saw the, can you see the woman's journey into knowing who Jesus is? From you're a Jew, to you're a prophet, to the Messiah, the Christ. And in, in fact, what happened was, this woman was so surprised that she went straight back to the town. Then leaving her water jar, she even left the jar on the wall, in the, in the well. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I've ever did. It's as if there's no more shame. The very people who shunned her, who made her an outcast, those were the people he went straight to and told her, Guys, look at this, look at this man. In effect, she became the first missionary to the Samaritans. A very effective missionary. Because she's been freed from shame and condemnation. She's been freed from all these labels that was put on her and all she had right now is this joy of being accepted. And she went straight to the people who shunned her and said, Guys, I don't care what you think about me, but this guy told me everything I ever did. As if, there's, again, there's no more shame. Do you know what I mean? Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. I see, mission is a joyful response of a freed soul. Not a daunting task which a follower of Christ obliges himself or herself to do. Once we really encounter God and really know who Jesus is by His grace, there's that joy in our hearts. Guys, you've got to know this person. You've got to know this person and you've got to know what He did in my life. You know, He told me everything I ever did but still accepted me, loved me. You know, this woman was had been freed from political label, racial label, social label, moral label, religious, theological label, shame and condemnation. And Jesus set her free by intentionally finding her, intentionally breaching social and religious norms to reach out to her, intentionally invited her to drink the living water, spoke the truth about her religious and moral stance, and revealed himself 
to her. This woman was absolutely free. And out of that freedom, it's just a, a desire to tell people who this person set me free. Because grace truly sets us free. But Andy was mentioning a while ago, I'm going to close with this. Maybe for some of us, we haven't really truly encountered God's grace yet because there's some things that are holding us back. And I can say for myself, that's true in areas in my heart. You know, always go back to that place when, God, please give me a deeper revelation of your love and your grace. Because oftentimes I still operate in that shame. But this is, this is for everyone. This is for all of us. Grace does not discriminate. So as, as, as I close in prayer, let's, let's reflect that grace truly sets us free. And I'm going to hand this over to Andy and to the band. And uh, again, reflect on God's amazing grace.